So I'd like to read two passages. The one is Matthew 28. Yes. Matthew 28, that's the, uh, the resurrection of Christ event itself. And then after that, we'll read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. So this takes place on a Sunday morning. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Christ has risen. And Paul speaks to that, Apostle Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians, which we read now, that will be our focus today. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. You also see an outline of it on the back of your bulletin. You see Christ's promise, you see his power, and you see his plan, his unfolding plan in these verses. 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 20 to 28. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become their first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man, that's capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. 
Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. See those first words of 1 Corinthians 15, 20? But now Christ is risen from the dead. No longer dead. He is risen. And the sense there is, and he remains risen. Just like we saw the words, it is finished. Right? It's accomplished. It is accomplished. And it remains accomplished. Now he's risen and he remains alive. Never, ever to die again. It's a fact. He has defeated the death and the grave. Yes, exactly. Yep. Amen to that. It really happened. It really happened, didn't it? Even the angels, right? The women thought, where is he? But the angels whom God sent came to the women and said, He's risen. Just as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Was the tomb empty? Indeed it was. It was empty. It's not a dream. It's not fiction. It's not a made-up story. It's not wishful thinking. It's real. It really happened. Jesus arose in his body on the third day. With his body. Not just a spiritual resurrection, some people would say today. No, in his body. Literally, physically, in his body. He died, arose again in his body on the third day. The grave is empty, and many people saw him. You know, it takes two witnesses to establish the truth. But how many saw him? Apostle Paul, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through, 1 through 11... He talks about how at one point, at one time, as many as 500, I mean, that's many times, 500 people, 500 people saw Jesus alive. So two things here. The grave is empty, and he appeared to many. People saw him alive. And so, yeah, we preach him. That's, that's really what we preach. We preach the crucified and risen Savior. That's really the... the uh, the nuts and bolts of the Christian faith, isn't it? That's really the core, the heart of the Christian faith. And by believing in him, by believing in the crucified and risen Lord, you may have hope. We can live out of the hope of Christ's resurrection. You know the Apostle Paul, in verses 12 through 19, what does he do? He counters those, he argues against those who say there is no resurrection of the dead. A lot of people say that today too. People who don't believe. They say, oh, that's not really real. But Christ says, or sorry, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen either. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, there's no point in coming together. There's no point in preaching the gospel. Uh, Your faith is based on a lie. If it's just fiction... It's just a lie, right? But it really happened. Your faith is based on a historical truth that really, really happened in history. If it didn't really happen, then you know what? Then death is just the end of everything. You die like a dog in the dirt, and that's it. 
That's how many people think of it today. But, says Paul, Christ is risen. Now Christ is risen from the dead. And you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead makes all the difference for our daily life, doesn't it? Makes all the difference. Knowing our forgiveness from God through faith in him and the peace and joy that comes with it. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says it this way. He says, I believe in the risen Christ just as I believe that the sun, he's talking about the sun in the sky, just as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's a new creation. Right? By faith we see a new creation. We are a new creation. We live in a world that doesn't like this message. They mock it. Just as they mock Christ on the cross, they mock his resurrection. And they make all kinds of arguments against it. And trust that the message of a risen Savior will strengthen you, equip you to share the good news. Strengthen you to stand firm in this truth because that's the nuts and bolts of our salvation. That's the heart of our salvation. And that we have the boldness to share the good news because without it, people are going to hell. Simple as that. Without believing in Christ, there's only hell. And so from 1 Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul, he shows the glory of the triumphant risen Christ. And we see three things here. We see his promise, we see his power, and we see his plan. Embracing all of history. Actually, really from the time of his resurrection to the time of his return, to the time of the general resurrection. So those three things we want to see. First of all, his promise. Verse 20. Now Christ has risen from the dead, and then it says, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the firstfruits. What's that mean? Well, again, you go back to the Old Testament. Only then can we truly understand what firstfruits are. You go back to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10. But firstfruits is a word picture. The the word firstfruits is a word picture taken from farming, taken from the world of of agriculture. In the time of Israel, it pointed to the first sheaf. Sheaf was a bundle of grain. The first sheaf of the harvest. They would gather that. And what would they do with it? They would bring it to the temple and offer it to the Lord. And so it was the first fruits. Okay? The rest of the harvest was still there, but this was the first part of the harvest, and it showed two things. Okay, first of all, by bringing the first fruit, by bringing the first sheep of the harvest, what were they doing? They were setting apart the whole harvest to the Lord. That's the one thing. And the second thing, it implies a harvest to come. There's more on the way. That's why I entitled the sermon, uh, Christ of First Fruits, and more to come. And likewise here, Christ is the first fruits. You see that in verse 20, the word first fruits is used. And also in verse 23, this implies there's more to come. And so by faith, we see what? We, we see the more to come. 
You know the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the body, in his, in his resurrection from the dead in the body, is a promise, is a proof of the resurrection that his people will also be raised from the dead in their bodies. That is, to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a promise. Jesus doesn't lie. God doesn't lie. Will he keep his promise? Most certainly. You know, true, Christ was not the first to rise from the dead. He raised others. You can give many examples of those whom he raised from the dead. But you know what was different about that? The other ones he raised eventually died. But he's the first one who arose never to die again. He's living. He's the living one. And notice what verse 20 says. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Who are those who have fallen asleep? It means those who believe but have since died. Okay, we're probably buried in the grave. Well, that's what it is for believers. For believers, death is like sleep. It's not the end of everything for believers. Believers will rise from the dead to life. You believe that? Really? It's not fiction. There's a lot of fictional stuff out there, a lot of myths. But this is historical. This is truth. This is from the Word of God. Believers will rise from the dead to life. What, what an encouragement. What, an, what comfort to us, isn't it? Christ the first fruit implies that there is more coming. There is a harvest that will be yielded. And you see here a guaranteed harvest. It's a harvest that's guaranteed. See verse 23? Each one in his own order. In other words, each one in his own rank. First Christ, and afterwards those who belong to Christ at his coming. His coming here refers to his coming again in the clouds of glory at the end of the world. Yeah, Christ's resurrection is a promise that he will raise his people to life when he comes again at the end of the world. Think of it this way. Christ the first fruits is kind of like a down payment. We all, we all understand the language of down payment. You need a down payment to have a guarantee. The down payment, or in this case the first fruits, is a guarantee that there's more coming. It's a promise that more is coming. Now, of course, sometimes people ask the question, if Christ died for us, how could we still have to die? By the way, that's also a question in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 42. If Christ died for us, then how could we still have to die? Well, first of all, for believers, the answer is that our death, our dying, is not a payment for sin. Who paid for our sin? Jesus did, right? Christ did. He paid for our sin. All of it. But what does, our, what does our death do? Believers who die, what does it do? It puts an end to their sinning. It puts an end into sinning and it opens, it's an entrance into eternal life. In other words, right? Christ in that way is preparing us for that new body. Well, the old body has to die first in order for this body to become raised up complete and new. You know, that changes our perspective on death, doesn't it? Christians have a totally different perspective on death than non-believers, than the world does. 
You know, the Bible talks about death for the believer. Is it harmful? Death is not harmful. It's harmless. Think of 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. You know, it's, Christ has removed what? The sting out of death. Think of a wasp coming to you. If you know it doesn't have a stinger, you, you, can, you can make a pet out of the wasp. Right? It can be your friend. Although death is not a friend, we're not going to say that. But it's harmless, isn't it? A wasp is harmless when the stinger is removed. That's how we may see death. That's how we should see death, according to the Bible. Paul says, therefore, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, because it's to be forever in the presence of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says in Philippians, or in Thessalonians, he says too, we don't sorrow. When there's a death, we don't sorrow as the world does. We don't sorrow as those without hope. Death is not the end. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Will God forget you in the grave? Oops, I forgot to raise so-and-so from the dead. He's not like that. He is fully trustworthy. Psalm 16, he will not leave me in the grave. Even if I'm completely decomposed and there's just particles left, he will not leave me in the grave. That's his promise. Again, you know, we think of this this day. Let's again denounce. Let's, by God's grace, denounce the fear of death. Denounce the fear of death and embrace the certainty of our resurrection that awaits all those who trust and know the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, that's the promise. We can depend on his promise. It's absolutely sure. It's absolutely solid. And you have in verses 21 and 22, what do we see here? We can see and believe his power to fulfill his promise. We saw the promise. Will he fulfill it? Oh yes. We see the power of Christ fulfill his power, uh, promise. His power to raise the dead to life. How does he prove in that? By raising himself to life. By his own resurrection from the dead. We see two things here in 21 and 22. The first thing is that the power of life. We see the power of life over death. If you look at verses 21 and 22. You see some parallels here. Notice this. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You notice that the death part comes first. That's the reality. But what comes second? The life part. And the life is stronger than the death. The life overcomes the death. If you look at verse 21, it speaks of the agent of death. Who is it that brought death into the world? Man. Adam. Adam. And we and Adam brought death into the world. Romans 5 says, Death came through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sin. God didn't make us to die. He made us to live forever. 
but death is a consequence of sin. And there's only one who can overcome it, another agent, the agent of life, the one who brings life. And who's that agent? The man, the one who became man, Christ. The agent of life was another man. By him came the resurrection from the dead. So what do you see here? You have two representative heads of the human race. You have Adam and you have Christ. Adam, he's the head of the old human race. For us and Adam all die. That speaks of our union in Adam. He died, we all die. But Christ is the head of the new human race. All shall be made alive. No, not everyone in Adam's race will be made alive, but all who belong to Jesus, all, everyone who belongs to Jesus will be made alive. Union with Christ. Union with him in his death. Union with him in his resurrection. Union with him in the heavenly places. The one begets the other. The first fruit begets the harvest. Yes, in Christ, all people are made alive because of the salvation Christ earned for them on their behalf as a second Adam. Death is overcome. It's conquered. In his resurrection, what does Christ do? He does what no one else can do, and that is reverse the curse. He brings, not the curse, but life and blessing. He raises a new humanity. You know, there's two humanities in the world, isn't there? That's the only division the Bible knows in the world. We talk about so many divisions today, racial divisions and this division and that division and class division. But there's only one division in the world, and that is those who belong to the Adamic race and those who belong to Christ. There's no other division in, in the Bible's words. Only one division between Christ and those who belong to Adam. You notice here that God raises a new humanity in Christ. Think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. By the sun, I see everything. The world is blind to the glories and to the reality. They're still dreaming. They're still fast asleep. They're still in their sins. But in Christ, we see the world is open. The world is broad. All creation. Yes. And the second little thing we want to see here is that there's power for renewal. You know, modern man's solution to the problems of our society is what? Throw money at it. $10 million, $100 million. Is that going to bring in the kingdom of love, joy, and peace? No. Problems with guns and crime. Throw money at it. Throw money at it. More money. Problems with bullying in the school? More education. Throw more money at it. That's going to solve a problem, isn't it? No, the real problem is Adam. The culture of Adam. It's one of death. The culture of death. The problem is what? It's sin. It's hatred. It's corruption. It's crime. It's lawlessness. 
It's idolatry. Money can't solve any of that. You can throw all kinds of money at it, but it's not going to bring peace and love and the joy that Christ brings. You know, the real deep-seated renewal is not found in money, but in what? The message of Christ's resurrection. It's the message of Christ. That's the only thing that's going to change hearts. It's the only thing that's going to change families. It's the only thing that's going to change society. There is no other way for renewal except through the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ powerfully creates a new humanity. He raises it out of the dust of the old Adamic race and out of it a new humanity, a new culture, a culture that flourishes, a culture that's one that's living because the source of it is what? Life. The resurrection power of Christ. That's what changes people's lives. When people come to repentance of their own sin and trust in Christ, there isn't one. I'll just give you one example of this. It's so beautiful to see that. The region of Achaia, you see two, two references to it, at least in the New Testament. One is in Romans 16, verse 5, and the other one is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. But in Romans 16, verse 5, Paul says there, Greet my beloved, and I can't say his name, Epinetus. Why? He's the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. He was one who was changed by the message of Christ's resurrection. He's one of the first fruits of it. And what does that mean? There's more in the region of Achaia that's going to come to believe. Christ has more people there. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 15. Paul says, You know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. There is more fruits. Right? First fruits implies more people are coming to believe in Jesus through the resurrection message. And you notice the wilderness of Achaia was turning into the Garden of Eden through the message of the resurrection of Christ. You know the secret to a flourishing culture? Just believe in the resurrection of Christ. Believe in the resurrect, risen Christ and share that message. That is the, the way that the, the, the grounds of civilization are torn down and resurrected into a new and glorious um, life and living culture, flourishing culture. You know, you witness among us, it's beautiful to see, witness among us the first fruits of those coming to faith in Christ here in this part of Brampton. And I think we may be really encouraged that God will bring in more, more to the harvest. And yeah, he can transform the city into a culture that is God-honoring and God-glorifying, a thriving and flourishing culture. He can do that. It's the power. There's the power of the message. That's the point here, the second point. Uh, we know he's going to keep his promise because he has the power to do it. His resurrection power is the power for renewal through faith in Christ. And you notice, by believing in Christ, there's three things. We share in his righteousness, the righteousness that Christ won for us on the cross. We already resurrected to a new life in Christ. That means a spiritual life. But there's more to come. 
and that's the last part, the body. So, talking about a great menu for Easter. The menu is laid before us, and it's just so wonderful and so great to see the grace of God in this way, coming to sinners, raising us from the dust, from the misery of our sins, and calling us and making us, adorning us as his royal sons and daughters of the kingdom. He has the power. He is fulfilling his promise, and he will fulfill his promise concerning the future resurrection. How do we know that? He has a plan. And we don't need to consult mediums. We don't need to consult palm readers. We don't need to consult astrologers. No. In Christ, what do we do? We ban them. They have nothing to do with the Christian life. But we look to Christ, and he reveals the the plan before us in verses 24 to 28. Verses 24 to 28, God gives a plan in broad outline from the time of Christ's resurrection all the way to the time when we ourselves will be resurrected from the dead as believers in Christ at his return. And we notice two things here. First of all, his plan in history is directed towards a goal. When we have plans, we have a goal, right? That we orient our plans towards. Well, so does Christ. What's his goal? Look at verse 24. His goal to which Christ is directing all history, everything in history, our government leaders, the World Economic Forum, and all the other stuff going on in our world is spelled out in verse 24. Then then comes the end, that is the end of the world, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When? When will he do that? When he puts all an end to all rule, authority, and power. By his resurrection, the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Hasn't he? Remember Matthew 28? All authority on earth and heaven has been given to me. Who is it given to him by? The Father. And he will continue to have that authority until all things have been subdued or you could say put under his feet. And at that time he then, he will hand over his authority, he will hand over the kingdom to the Father. So you see, the length of time that he has authority from the time of his resurrection all the way, we call his mediatorial authority, all the way, and it continues all the way until Christ returns and then he hands over his kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. But what is Christ doing in the meantime? He's doing many things. He's interceding. He's preparing a place. There's so many things he's doing. But one thing that this passage really focuses on is that he's subduing. He's conquering. He's putting things under his feet. Ruling and reigning. Why? That raises the question, why does... Why was Jesus given authority at his resurrection... And why didn't that he handed over to God the Father at the resurrection of all believers? Why is that? Because he's taking our place. Remember the commission God gave to man in creation? Man was to have dominion and subdue all things, all creation for the glory of God. We failed. We failed miserably because of sin. But Jesus, Son of God, became man 
in our place to do what? To do what we didn't do. And that is to subdue all things for the glory of God. Thank God he's king. How is he subduing all things today? Through the word of God and by his spirit. He doesn't use swords and weapons and bombs. It's just the simple word of God. right? The power of God and the salvation, says Paul, is the gospel. Thank God he is king. Thank God. The World Economic Forum, which is so much in the news, don't need to fear it. It's all shenanigans. It's all shenanigans. And they are not in control of the world. They will never create a utopia. They will never create a kingdom. They will undermine themselves. Now there are world leaders. They're not in control. And you think about it. You know, those words of Psalm 2, kiss the sun, lest he be angry in the way. Listen, world rulers, listen. Think what happened to King Herod. He pretended to be a god. God killed him with worms. Dead the next day. Wow, this is our reigning king. He subdues in many and various ways. He is justly directing. This is the beautiful thing about our king. He's just and righteous and wise. He never does anything wrong. There's no pride in him. He's doing everything according to the will of God, to the glory of God. Directing all things, yeah, all things to their appointed end. You know what? Everything will be all right. Everything's, you will be okay. I will be okay. Believers in Christ will be okay. We have nothing to worry about. Nothing. Because we have a greater king. We have a more powerful king. And it will turn out good for his people. You have this guarantee. You have that guarantee. It doesn't mean that there's no battles. Oh, lots of battles. Lots of strife. Lots of struggles. But trust him. Everything will be okay. Everything will turn out all right. He's doing his work. Work of subduing by his word and spirit. You know, by his word and spirit, he's graciously subduing all who belong to him. This is the wonderful thing. We would never come to Christ and Christ unless Christ first subdues us by his Holy Spirit. And when he subdues us, it's so that we can share in his glory, that we can share in his kingdom, the glory and the joy. Praise God for his work of subduing. He's strong enough to subdue us and bring us down so that we can be raised up and exalted and dressed as royal sons and daughters of God. And you, you witness his reign in families, right? You see, the, you see the reign of Christ in your families. Doesn't mean there's no struggles. Doesn't mean there's no battles. But yeah, you see something of the joy and the peace of the kingdom. Witness uh, Hope Academy, right? Another example of the reign of Christ and how Christ is subduing education for his honor and glory. Witness the spread of the gospel and, yeah, the progress. I don't believe things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Christ is king. And you see the progress of the gospel and that gospel is spreading. People are believing. Churches are multiplying. And there's more and more singers on this earth bringing glory to God. Of course, Satan hates it and that's why there's also more persecution the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You could say he subdues in one of two ways. Let's make it very simple. How does he subdue? In one of two ways. 
One way is he brings life through repentance and faith in him. The other way is death through judgment on those who do not believe. He subdues either way. He works in both ways. He works unto salvation. When those who believe and those who don't believe, he brings condemnation. He's king. The risen Lord is king. Look at verse 25. For he must reign. He must reign till he put all his enemies under his feet. No matter how strong the powers of earth and hell may seem, no matter how afraid you might think the wicked will win, they won't. Christ will win. He must reign. And he will reign until he has put all things under his feet. And then it says his enemies, that is all those who do not submit to him in faith, will be judged and forever excluded from him and from his glorious kingdom, which is forever and ever and ever. That no eye has seen, that no ear has heard about the glories that yet awaits the children of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 26 mentions one of those evil powers he came to destroy. And what is it? It talks about that evil power as a mister. Mr. Death, as the last enemy to be destroyed. In principle, Christ has overcome it and has destroyed it. But yeah, we still die because that's our entrance into glory. But that's the last enemy to be destroyed. Christ's reign will continue until all his enemies shall have been brought to nothing. The last being death will be brought to nothing. Death will be robbed of all its power. That's a great robbing. That's a happy robbing. Right? Christ will rob the power of death. Or rob death of all its power. And bring those who trust in Jesus to a resurrection of life that is forever and ever and ever and ever. The sinking of the hand of the Messiah forever and ever and ever. Verse 28 brings out the goal of Christ's work of subduing once again. When all things are made subject to him, when all things are put under him, that is, then the Son of Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to him who has put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's not saying that Jesus isn't God, he is God. That's not saying he remains to be the head of his people, he remains the head of his people. But what it's saying is that part of his work will be complete, and then he will hand over the kingdom that the Father initially gave him back to the Father, that God that includes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may be all in all. That's really our ambition, isn't it? That's our motive, our ambition, our hope. Christ is in command of this earth. Until the battle is over, let's not be afraid. We don't need to be afraid anyway. We do, we're often afraid. But we don't need to be afraid of the world, of its enemies, of our enemies. You don't need to be afraid of death. You trust in him who is fearless for you and me. The one who fearlessly fought sin. Who fearlessly fought sin and death and Satan for you and he conquered. Stand firm. You are safe. You are safe in Jesus. 100% if we trust on him. We need to trust on him. He's our shield. Here's our fortress. 
Christ is risen. Death is defeated. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. The fullness is yet to come. Christ is the resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits. There's more on the way. Believe and see his promise, his power, his plan. It's all there for us in broad outline. With him, you're in the safest place on earth. And you know what? The worst days are not yet to come. The best days. And that's, that's, that's what we see as, as God's people by faith. We see the best days are coming. They're coming. And then faith will become sight. We will enjoy the blessed fellowship with God in Christ Jesus and enjoy the feast forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternal rest. No more pain. No more crying. No more sorrow. No more battle with Christ forever. Amen.